friend. Welcome to Java with Julie, hosted by me, Julie Slattery. Java with Julie is a listener-supported podcast and an outreach of Authentic Intimacy, which is a ministry dedicated to reclaiming God's design for sexuality. Well, I just can't believe it, but we are actually in the final week of our seven-week series. And this week, we're going to be focusing on sex and culture. And if there is a dialogue you can expect to be involved in as a Christian today, it's going to be the LGBTQ conversation. Everybody wants to know or thinks they know or doesn't want to talk about what the Bible says about this topic. There are so many different arguments for and against same-sex relationships and same-sex marriages, and it's so important that we as Christians are rooted in what the Bible actually says. God's Word says that knowing the truth is going to set us free. And that's why I'm grateful for the conversation that I'm going to have today with my friend Preston Sprinkle. Preston is the co-founder and president of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. He is the host of the podcast, Theology in the Raw, and the author of eight books, including his most recent book, Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage? And that's actually going to be the book that he's here to talk about today. Preston has a huge heart for the LGBTQ community and helping churches navigate these conversations with grace and truth. All of his work through the center and through his podcast and his books is really designed to help equip people. He wants us all to understand God's design for sexuality and his desire is to reach people inside and outside the church relationally and truthfully rooted in God's word. This is a conversation that's going to be exploring the historical context, the social dynamics, and some of the ideologies underneath same-sex marriage. I really think that this conversation has something for everyone. So get comfortable, grab your latte, and listen as I talk with Preston Sprinkle. Well, Preston, I always look forward to our conversations, whether uh, you're on the side of asking the questions or I am. <laughs> so we seem to be able to do that every six months or so. And, uh, and today is my opportunity to ask you questions about a new book that you just published, and it addresses this idea of, does the Bible say anything about same-sex marriage in particular? In some ways, I felt like when I read this book, it, for you, it was like almost taking a step backwards because um, your last several books and a lot of your ministry are kind of teasing out uh, all the nuance of how do we interact with LGBTQ individuals? What's the right posture? And in this book, you kind of take us back to the basics of, okay, let's just talk about what the Bible says about the topic mm-hmm. of same-sex marriage. So I'm kind of wondering what led you to kind of write something that's more a nuts and bolts kind of basic guidebook yeah. yeah that's a great question julian Th- yeah thanks for having me on it's always actually i do so much of the question asking it's nice to be on this side of things so i've written you know a few books on the topic uh my first i guess main book on sexuality was people to be loved uh, mm-hmm. that was back in 2015 and and that it was both kind of a theological uh journey through scripture um and you know weaving in lots of relationships and asking lots of broader pastoral questions and and, and things so I feel like this second book is is almost like, you know, in the last seven years, what are, what are all the kind of pushbacks I've gotten? Or what about this? What about that? And so it's kind of responding to, uh, as I like to say, maybe the dust it was kind of kicked up hmm. with people we loved. Um, it's focusing more specifically on uh, theological and biblical arguments for same-sex marriage that maybe weren't addressed in my previous book or were under-addressed or maybe 
maybe some new, you know, there's been new arguments that have come out that, you know, I, I, I've been getting. So the, the book really is, you know, in the last seven years with all my, you know, whenever I speak on the topic, all the questions and Q and A's that I do, I've been keeping kind of like a mental list of what are the main kind of questions I keep getting. And I would love to just put that all on a resource so that rather than responding in to every single question, I could say, okay, all, all my answers are in this one book. So, and it, it, you know, I also have in mind maybe even like a parent with a gay kid or, or a kid who just affirms same-sex marriage. And, you know, the tip of the kid might be raising lots of hard questions that the parents like, ah, uh, you know, the kid's like, mom, dad, didn't you know that the word homosexual was added to the Bible in 1946? Like it's the wasn't in the original manuscripts. Hmm. And the parent might be like, I don't know how to respond to that, you know? So I, I wrote this book to kind of give a short, accessible kind of, guide to how to navigate so all these questions that people are raising. Yeah. And I feel like this is a book that every Christian should have access to and have on bookshelf or on your e-reader, however you like to read. And the reason why is because it's not just the a kind of book that you want to sit down and read through, but it's a good reference guide. So it's not just that, that parent of a same-sex child, but it's, Hey, I got in this conversation uh, in my college class, or this came up in a dialogue with a fellow believer, and I wasn't sure what the answer was. And yeah. to have somebody like yourself, who is a New Testament scholar, has done the research, has been in this field, um, just to give a succinct biblical answer is a great resource. I know I'll be referring to it probably again and again. So let's start with this idea that I think in the last 20 years or so, particularly the last 10 years, there are a lot of Christians who feel like the Bible is not clear on same-sex relationships. Um, because it's not clear, we kind of get to choose that mm-hmm. you can see it this way or you can see it that way. And therefore, people who would choose to hold to a traditional sexual ethic are pretty unloving. And you address this in in the yeah. argument of, can't we just agree to disagree? Like, this is not a primary issue that Christians need to take a stand on. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's a chapter 20, 19 mm-hmm. or 20, uh, where people say, isn't this just an agree to disagree issue? And one of the, one of the reasons is they say, look, there's good people on both sides. All these verses are debated. So we can just, it's just kind of a toss up. So if you choose to believe in the traditional view, then yeah, you're, you're, you're motivated to do that because you could just equally choose the other view, but you're choosing not to. So yeah, I, um, and to be clear in, in one of the things I try to do in the book is help people to always try to find something. Is there anything good in an argument you can agree with? Like, and that's something that any, any skilled debater, any, any, any psychologist is all any marriage counselor is always going to say, you know, like finding a point of agreement is just a good way to have a more profitable conversation where the other person might actually consider what you're trying to say. So in every response I give in the book, I always say, is there anything good in this argument that we can resonate with? So, you know, with that argument, um, I think there is a, a, there's a passion for the unity of the church, you know, and, and, and uh, I grew up in an environment where we didn't really care about the unity of the church. It was kind of like truth at all costs, unity if possible, which mm-hmm. meant, yeah, we're not going to be unified you know, unless you agree <laughs> with everything we, we say. So, and I'm like, yeah, no, I, th- I think uh, we should be able to agree to disagree on, on lots of, issues that, that maybe aren't that core to the gospel. Um, now, I, I I do think that the question of marriage is not one of those. I, I don't think it's an agree to disagree issue. Um, I do think it's a 
significant theological belief in scripture that marriage is between a man and, and a woman. Um, I see that woven throughout the storyline of scripture. It's not insignificant. It's not just a few verses in the Old Testament or whatever that we're talking about. So yeah, when people say, well, yeah, but these verses, they're all debated, you know, I'm like, well, okay. I mean, and, and here's where like, um, you know, my background as a biblical scholar, if we just threw our arms up and said, well, it's all debated, you know, Plato's debated, Socrates is all, you know, the existence of Hitler is debated, you know, like everything is debated. So the, the what we need to do is look at which arguments for certain interpretations are best representing scripture, you know. Yeah. Um, so why is this a primary issue? Why, why is it a gospel centric issue and not something that we can just kind of live with not resolving? So, yeah, it's a great question. And I think if we were just talking about certain prohibitions about same-sex sexual relationships, yeah, there's a you know five or so verses. Um, I still think those are significant just because there's five doesn't mean it's insignificant. But that's not the main point of this conversation. The main point is what is marriage? Specifically, is sex difference part of what marriage is? Marriage is the location where God has designed the human species to perpetuate, right? To, mm-hmm. to grow and flourish and fill the earth, you know, sex difference as part of what marriage is, is even woven into the very fabric of Genesis one and two, this, this fundamental, and this isn't really that debated that Genesis one and two is fundamental for a Christian worldview. It's where we talk about the sovereignty of God, the imminence, the closeness of God, the goodness of creation, the full equality of men and women that, that we are created in God's image. It's why racism is wrong. It's why misogyny is wrong. It's why slavery is, you know, fundamental. Well, woven throughout Genesis 1 and 2 is not just marriage, but the fact that marriage is a one flesh union between a male and female. And then throughout scripture, marriage is both a human institution, but it's also a symbol of God's divine love for us. And at the other end of the storyline of scripture, we see marriage being used as a metaphor for Christ's return to earth. So marriage, specifically sex difference as part of what marriage is, is woven into the core fabric of the storyline of scripture. So once we untangle, once we undo that basic understanding of what marriage is, we are messing with the very foundation of the storyline of scripture. Mm-hmm. So, and that's something that when people say it's an agree to disagree issue, they typically aren't they don't think about those categories. They think about Leviticus 18.22, some verse in Leviticus that we don't obey the rest of Leviticus. Isn't this, this can't right. be that significant. So I think yeah. they're asking the wrong questions when they arrive at it and agree mm-hmm. to disagree. Which is why it's so important for us as, as Christ followers to understand the meta narrative of scripture and how sexuality, gender, marriage all fit in there. Yeah. It's not just you about a great job in your book. That's what I love about your books is you on a very practical, understandable way, you bring in that storyline of scripture. It's so good. Yeah. That's what's helped me make sense of this all is and it's not about the law, it's about God's heart and yeah. about what he's doing through history. Yeah. All right. Well, that kind of lends us to some of the other arguments that you bring up. Uh, let's talk about history. <laughs> you just mentioned earlier an example of a kid saying to his parents, hey, did you know that homosexuality wasn't even in the original scriptures or in the Bible? That's like a modern adaptation. How would you respond to that? Yeah. My first response is there's a lot of truth to that. Mm-hmm. The, the, the English word homosexual or homosexuality is not 
a good translation of any Greek or Hebrew word in the Bible. And there have been some English translations that have translated 1 Corinthians 6, 9 with the term homosexuals. So they would say, you know, neither adulterers nor the sexually immoral nor homosexuals dot, 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 will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the term homosexual refers to somebody who is attracted to the same sex. One might say they have a same-sex sexual orientation. It doesn't say somebody is acting on that attraction, okay? So technically, and you and I both know many people who are gay, they, you know, most people today don't prefer the term homosexual, but that's just for the sake of the discussion, you know, there's people who are, are homosexual, they're attracted to the same sex, but out of allegiance to Jesus, they're living a life of celibacy, are they not going to inherit the kingdom of God out of allegiance to Jesus? I'm not going to act on this very, um, this desire, this unchosen desire that I have. And I'm going to live my entire life without, you know, without getting married to somebody that I would desire to do. To me, that's a mark of faithfulness. If they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, then I think we're all kind of maybe in trouble. But um, so, so it's like, okay, well, what is that? What does the Greek word actually mean? Well, the Greek word arsenakoites in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that again, sometimes can be translated, has been translated homosexual. It, re- it actually means a, a man who is having sex with another male. Mm-hmm. They didn't mess up and repent. They're not being celibate. They are having ongoing sexual relationships with people the same sex, which is considered sexually immoral, along with other commands in that um, text that are considered sexually immoral. So, so yeah, it's it's true that no term in the Bible should be translated homosexual. Now, th- when people make the conclusion, therefore the Bible doesn't prohibit same-sex marriage, that that is a profound logical leap. You cannot use the word homosexual or homosexuality and still say marriage is between a man and a woman, having sexual relationships with the same sex is sin. Like you don't need the term homosexual or homosexuality to convey that ethical point. So yes, it's true bad translation but no that does not mean the bible mm-hmm. says between a man and a woman so then would it be correct to say everywhere that the scripture addresses what we might translate as homosexuality is actually talking about a particular action yes of and every place it's talking about a sexual action yes. mm-hmm. which kind of lends itself to another kind of line of this conversation, that there was no category in the ancient Hebrew or Greek world for Mm -hmm. what we might consider a a homosexual identity or an LGBT identity. And it was focused on what you're doing with your body, not how you see yourself. Is that true? Was there a concept of, they wouldn't have called it LGBTQ or gay or lesbian, but was there a sense in those cultures where people would identify with this is who I am? So that's, it's an interesting question. And um, there's, yeah, it, it's a complex question. First of all, yeah, people in the ancient world didn't identify with who they desire to have sex with. Typically people would identify as like more, ma- are they masculine or are they feminine? But they wouldn't, you know, consider who they had sex with as part of their identity. Now, where this argument, I think, where it focuses on is more specifically the concept of sexual orientation, that we now know today 
that some people, as the argument goes, that some people have a same-sex sexual orientation. They might even say they were born that way. That's another argument that I, that I address. You know, if the biblical writers knew what we now know today about sexual orientation, they wouldn't have prohibited same-sex sexual relationships. They just thought people were just choosing to do this, and you know, and and we now know it's not a same-sex orientation is not a choice. It, it's it's how people are wired. So my response to that is. Um, of course, ancient writers didn't have all of our psychological, scientific knowledge that we now have today. Okay, that should be a given. I'm not going to project on the Apostle Paul. I'm not mm-hmm. going to think the Apostle Paul knew, you know, the APAs. <laughs> I do think it's kind of a, the argument of chronological snobbery, too. Is that what it's called? That yeah. we're so enlightened today and the ancients didn't know what they're talking about. I'm like, oh, we got to be careful of that, too. Like, I don't know if we've arrived. Like, so, um, uh, but. The important thing is, while the ancient writers didn't know all the things we know about sexual orientation, and I would still hang a little hook there and say, I think, I'm not sure we have all our stuff worked out with that. But Mm -hmm. in the ancient world, there were ancient concepts that people were born with an innate desire to have sex with people the same sex. Like you see this, there's a uh, well-known scholar who... um, She's actually a lesbian scholar, Bernadette Bruton, who wrote a, a scholarly book several decades ago, all on this whole idea that in the ancient world, there was a, a kind of idea that would be similar to what we now call sexual orientation, that some people were born with a an innate desire for the same sex. So while Paul, again, we can say, did he know about sexual orientation? It's like, what do you mean by sexual orientation? Because... Mm-hmm. I don't know what he knew, but there was, there was ideas in the day that some people just had this innate desire. So that, yeah, I, I think we need to consider the historical context, but I, I also don't, I, I don't think, I don't think the biblical writers did ethics, ethical thinking the way we do today. Like today, a lot of people are like, Oh, if you have an, an innate desire toward a certain action, then the action must be correct. Yeah. Ancient writers didn't, reason that way they determined whether an action was resonated with god's design or not and if it didn't then it doesn't really matter whether someone has a desire no matter how powerful or seemingly unchangeable that desire is that the desire doesn't determine the legitimacy of the action it's the action they begin with the action and then go back and say you know what do we do with that Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's an important distinction you know, the chronological chronological snobbery or whatever you wanted to, to call it there assumes that all of the knowledge and evolution that we've been through is all good. So the fact that you can read the DSM, like now we're enlightened. Um, Whereas I think there's a counter argument to be made. I'm not sure what you think of his work, but Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and then the adaptation, this, this, this strange new world. Like he's making the argument that all that evolution and thinking, while there's some good things that have come from it, there's also some distortions of how we see ourselves. So the Apostle Paul didn't have the concept of sexual orientation because you would never think that my sexual desires are part of defining who I am. It was more like, I'm going to have all kinds of desires, but those don't define me. What defines me is my choice of who I'm going to worship. And so I don't define myself my, by my desire to have an extraordinary amount of caffeine or, <laughs> you know, like 
be a workaholic or, you know, like we learn that those desires, while they're part of us, they're not a core way of describing who we are. That really is very much a Western, as he describes, kind of modern individualistic understanding of the self. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I totally, totally agree with that. I mean, we can acknowledge that sexual desires in particular, especially ones that are unchosen and seemingly in a, yeah, so powerful, you know, yeah. um, it's not like craving for pizza, but, but at the same time, yeah, I, I think, um, well, it just factually is a very modern, very Western mindset that we're going to create kind of this fundamental identity around our sexual desires. Yeah. That's just, and I think Carl Truman does a good job, you know, documenting kind of where that came from. It goes all the way back in the last couple hundred years and, and, and shows where that came from. And that, that just because that's where we're at now in the West doesn't mean it's like, this is the way it should be, you know, mm-hmm. like. And so the, the argument that a lot of people will make is, well, what Paul was really saying is don't do anything contrary to your sexual desire. So yeah. like he was, he was actually saying, like, if you're heterosexual, you shouldn't be having gay sex or uh, you shouldn't be having sex with boys. And so they'll point to kind of the, particularly the Roman and Greek culture and say, that's what he was really prohibiting. So how do you yeah. reason with that kind of argument? That one's hard. I mean, the idea that an ancient Jewish Christian writer would even come close to thinking that, make sure you don't go against your desires. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's so foreign from the biblical way of thinking or just Christ, historic Christianity or even just global Christianity today. Like I, I don't, um, yeah. So I don't, but how do you go about reasoning with somebody? Because it's such an entrenched modern Western in slash white, slash, you know, it's just, it's just not to project on a Christianity is creating a Jesus in your own image. Now, if I led with that in a conversation, you know, that might, I, I want to be kind of more, how can I actually get somebody to see that's not the way the biblical writers reason. Again, in my book, I try to do both. I try to respond intellectually to arguments, but also help people to like, okay, but how do you go about having a conversation where somebody might actually listen to what you're saying rather than just shut you off because you're just blasted them with showing how stupid their argument is, you know? So, right. so even with that, I, w- I would want to really, really do a lot of listening. Really, where, where's somebody coming from? Where are they getting that from? Is it just in the air they've absorbed, you know? Is there anything in script? Do they, can they point to a passage where they're getting this from. Uh, if not, then maybe that's the starting point, not to refute that idea, but to help cultivate just a posture of the Bible's our authority, you know? Mm-hmm. That, that really, I mean, if somebody doesn't have that commitment, then let's forget the whole sexuality. Let, let's, yeah. get, let's do that first, because everything else is going to be off the rails if if somebody doesn't have that. Like, I, the Bible is my authority for my thought and practice and my ethics and everything. So Yeah. So let me ask um, you, if you're talking to somebody who would say, no, the Bible is not my authority, or I think the Bible is a good general guidebook, but it's outdated. Can and should we be having these kinds of conversations? Is it okay to talk about these things, or is it more harmful than helpful? That's a good question. I, I, I try to weigh, not to give a general response. I mean, every individual is different. So I like to go case by case by case by case with, with an individual, but... Yeah, in general, if somebody wasn't convinced the Bible's authoritative, I, I, I wouldn't really focus on arguing questions about sexuality. 
Hey, this is a quick break-in, and I just want to let you know that on November 7th, from 12.30 to 1 p.m. Eastern Time, we are hosting an Authentic Intimacy Open House. Now, this open house is an opportunity for you to learn more about our ministry, about our message, and about membership. Joyce Garka, our Authentic Intimacy Program Manager, is going to give you a behind-the-scenes tour of our membership platform and provide you with a chance to ask questions about member benefits and resources. And after that, all attendees will be invited to join our Authentic Intimacy membership community for what we call Second Cup Behind the Scenes of Java with Julie live on Zoom. This is a chance to ask me questions about last month's episode and see if membership is good for you. It's really a great opportunity, and I hope you'll join us. You can register in the link in the show notes. All right, back to my conversation with Preston Sprinkle. Well, Preston, a lot of people, a lot of Christians, I should say, really wish that we had an encounter in the Gospels where Jesus directly addressed these questions. If he had a gay couple come to him or, you know, nowadays, like what, what would Jesus do if he had a, a trans person come to him? And so we're, we're left to kind of guess. But that is an argument that people make. Like if this was so important, why didn't Jesus ever bring it up? Yeah, that, yeah. So that's, you know, why Jesus never addressed homosexuality is kind of how it's framed. And, and I, I have a chapter uh, on this. And first of all, we, we, Jesus lived in first century Israel, you know, like we, we, we can't assume that he is going to address or interact with people that weren't of that culture of that time. So yeah, I, I think it's uh, same sex sexual relationships were not, you know, accepted in Judaism at all. Were some people same sex attracted? I mean, I'm, I'm going to assume probably, um, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a brand, brand new thing, but uh, being kind of open and gay and in a same-sex relationship like that, this is not wouldn't have been accepted in, in that culture. It shouldn't be shocking that Jesus didn't have an encounter with people that we wouldn't expect him to have a encounter with in, in the first century. Now, did Jesus address the questions related to homosexuality? And the answer is not really. He does talk about sexual immorality, porneia in the, in the Greek, which in first century Judaism would have included same-sex sexual relationships, which were, you know, known in the Greco-Roman world, widely known. But Jesus does, this is where I think asking the right questions is so important. And to me, the main question is not, does the Bible permit or prohibit same-sex sexual relationships? So that's an important question, but it's not the main question. The main question is, what is marriage? And there Jesus directly addresses that. Matthew 19, Mark 10, you know, he says, God created the male and female, quoting Genesis 127. And then then says, then he quotes Genesis 2.24, for this reason, man, to leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. And the two, which two? The male and the female shall become one flesh, which is the biblical phrase for marriage. So Jesus explicitly says one of the most important things in this entire conversation, that marriage, one flesh union, is between a male and, and a female. So so this is where the, these arguments sometimes can be a little bit of a red herring, a, a kind of a distraction, because it's like there's a lot of truth here. It doesn't directly mention same-sex sexual relationships, but then to draw a conclusion, therefore, either Jesus doesn't have an opinion on the topic or it must not be that important because he doesn't address it. I think that it's the, some of those logical conclusions that are a bit wrongheaded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. And can we also then say, even in that statement of him referring back to Genesis, he's establishing 
kind of a worldview on male and female as well. Oh yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, some people bring up, well, what about the eunuch? You know, a few verses later, he brings up uh, uh, somebody who's uh, born a eunuch, which most likely was somebody born with some kind of defect, abnormality in their sexual anatomy, maybe born without genitalia or a non-functioning genitalia or however you want to word it. But if we we're going to draw a parallel between a eunuch and what, what's, what would be a born eunuch today, it would be in the category of somebody maybe with a, some kind of uh, intersex condition mm-hmm. or order of sex development. But And some people say, aha, see? I'm like, well, what, what, what? Yeah, people are born with all kinds of atypical features in their in their anatomy, even sexual anatomy. Like that's just part of what it means to be living in a, a, a imperfect, broken, fallen, fallen world. Um, I was born deaf in my left ear, but I think, but the original design is this left ear should have been working, you know, ears are designed to hear, like, I don't, you know, <laughs> so the fact that he brings up the eunuch doesn't challenge the male, female sex binary. It just says that some males and females might have atypical features in their sexual anatomy. And, and sometimes they're significant, you know, but mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a basic scientific, well, I, I guess I should say it, it should be a basic scientific assumption that, Homo sapiens as a species are a sexually dimorphic species. We reproduce when a gamut of one side of the sex binary is fused with the gamut of another, you know, the sperm and egg. Like that's, this is basic scientific yeah. assumptions that, that we are, that humans are a sex binary. But I, as you know, that some people question that, but I think when they question that it's, they add in a lot of confusion around sex and gender and, and, some terminology that's just kind of thrown around. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, you know, you do have all this new Testament knowledge, old Testament knowledge, all the study that you have, you understand the science of this, but I think for a lot of people, like their arguments are not going to be rooted in what this Greek word means or even the biology. They're just going to say, it's all about love Preston and God is love. God loves me for who I am. A loving God would uh, allow me to find marriage and family and a romantic partner of the same sex because love is so important. And that may be the most compelling argument for people of regardless of the scientific or biblical arguments, like that's emotional. That's, that's real life. So where do we begin to, address that when it's, again, not a factual argument, but more a, an argument of experience. Yeah, yeah, it, it, you're dead on. I, th- those are the more compelling arguments. And sometimes even some of the more biblical, exegetical, theological arguments, if people even use those, I think deep down it is more of these kind of questions yep. that, that's trying that. So again, in, in our practice of, of kind of, of really trying to get inside the argument, feel what they're feeling when, when they raise questions like that. I think it's important that, yeah, that that's who's going to deny that um, a desire for a romantic partner is not, can be overwhelming. Few people have not experienced that falling in love feeling or that, that hope of having a, a marriage partner of having a flourishing marriage and sex life and, and, and all that. So these are real, I think I want to affirm that these are really powerful, strong desires, you know, now, in this case, those desires are now being used as like kind of like in service of a theological argument. 
and and that's where I'm. I want to kind of make a distinction. I, I can very much resonate with how powerful these desires are, but if you're asking me to therefore form a certain theological argument around these real desires, then then we have to we do have to think kind of intellectually about the content of the actual argument. So, God is love, right? For Sean, for like sixteen or something, um, love is powerful. We are called to love our enemies and our neighbors. You know, I think we do need to make a distinction between biblical agape love and sexual desires or even romantic desires um god loves me but you know god doesn't have sex with me you know Mm -hmm. like we're called to love our neighbors doesn't mean we should have sex with our neighbors so and i think sometimes this argument just goes back and forth of using love in in a general way god is love and then but then we'll use love in a specific way of referring to a romantic sexual partner and that's where I really want to keep those separate. The same God who is love, who commanded us to love others, also gave us a sexual ethic. Like it would be a false dichotomy to say because God is love, therefore we shouldn't listen to what the Bible says about sexual ethics. I also do get nervous, and this is both theological and very relational. I do get nervous when Christians, and this happens on both ends of the spectrum of conservatives and progresses. I do get nervous when people assume that they can't feel love, be loved, or love, or experience happiness unless they get married, mm-hmm. or have a happy marriage, or have a flourishing sex life. Um, there's nothing in the New Testament that promises that a follower of Jesus will get married to the person you sexually desire you know, um, elevates singleness. Marriage is a very high calling, a specific vocation with a purpose. So this whole idea of I can't survive without satisfying my romantic sexual longings, I do want to, I think that's going to lead to a lot of unhappiness, really. I think it puts a lot of undue weight on marriage itself to satisfy all these things. Because even if you do get married to the person you desire, there's all kinds of stuff that can happen within that marriage that if you put so much of your faith and this is going to satisfy my longing for love as a human being, I think you're going to be let down in in most Mm -hmm. most cases. I'm nervous about the subtle, almost idolatry, or maybe I'll say an unhealthy view of that. I need marriage to be happy that, that that kind of underlies that argument. Right. Um, And that, that sort of goes back to some of those Western assumptions again, that yeah. we've really built a model of happiness based on sexual expression and romantic attachment. And yeah. instead of the church challenging that assumption, we've yeah. kind of just Christianized it. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be sexually fulfilled. He wants you to find your soulmate. And mm-hmm. you're the New Testament scholar, but my understanding of like biblical marriage, it wasn't based on who you're hot for, <laughs> you know, or or romantic yeah. longing or attachment, like that's part of it. And you work on that once you're in a covenant of marriage, but marriage in the biblical times is a lot more utilitarian in some ways. Um, and certainly yeah. a covenant called to love each other with that agape love. Yeah, totally. It, it really is. There's a great book by a secular scholar, Stephanie Kuntz. I'm looking at it now. It's, it's a whole history of marriage. Mm-hmm. From like of today and, and it does a great job of showing that in every kind of stage in history, every culture has its own kind of 
emphasis on marriage, you know, in the ancient world is contractual and it was just for procreation, maybe displays of power and all the way to like post enlightenment in the West. We have this emphasis on romance, you know, and, and again, going back to the chronological snobbery, we think, well, yeah, and we finally got it right. You know, yeah. well, if you base it on romance and attraction, that has its pros and cons too. I don't want to deny that that's not a powerful thing and a draw. And I think song of songs, mm-hmm. you know, highlight some of that, you know, but if you base marriage on romance and attraction, then when some of those things wear off, which they most often do, then all of a sudden you think, oh, well, this marriage is no longer good anymore if that has been your foundation. So I, I, I don't want to discount romance and attraction, but I also don't want to put too much stock in that. Um, I have learned so much about true marriage, biblical marriage from friends of mine where one of the spouses is actually gay or attracted mm-hmm. to the same sex, opposite mm-hmm. sex marriage, but one is same sex attracted because they've had to learn from the beginning. How can we have a flourishing marriage, a rich meaning, maybe meaningful marriage that does produce joy and happiness where we can't rely on just sexual attraction for this thing to flourish. I was just with some friends a couple days ago and They've been through a lot. They've worked through a lot. And I'm in no way I'm saying this is what everybody should do or whatever. But like, I, I'm just was so overwhelmed with how they've had to work through stuff. I mean, unique things, you know, but to see how they absolutely just loved each other in, mm. in a real meaningful way. I'm like, man, that I think us heterosexual couples can learn a lot from that because after what is it? The seven year mark or whatever you do all this counseling, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, after yeah. a lot of married couples in seven to 10 years in like, I think I married the wrong person, you know, and it's like, well, no, let's, let's work through this, you know? So um, I, I've learned lots about marriage, a lot about marriage from, from couples that have had to not rely on romance and sexual attraction to make their marriage. Flourish, yeah. You know? And I absolutely agree. We can learn a lot in heterosexual marriages because, you know, I think the research shows that only about 10% of heterosexual marriages actually have aligned sexual desires. Really? And so while it's not desire for the other, other sex, it's one person has a high sexual drive, the other person has a lower, uh, one person has an initiating desire, the other person has a responsive desire, or there's things in the way like trauma from the past or, or physical or hormonal issues. And so that's the majority of couples to, that run into these long seasons where I'm not feeling understood sexually or satisfied sexually. And if the whole paradigm of marriage is, well, I'm supposed to be attracted to you and we're supposed to be having great sex and everything else is sort of bonus, then, you know, these marriages fall apart instead of being like, no, the purpose of marriage is that we might live out the kind of covenant love that God has for us. And actually Mm -hmm. the romance and the sexual attraction, that's the bonus that we work on. So I agree, like the couples that that have sort of that mixed orientation marriage, they're actually showing us something that is probably true in an awful lot of our marriages. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I, it's interesting, I mean, sexuality is, it's complex too. I mean, yeah. I've, most of the friends of mine, again, the ones that have healthy marriages, again, people who are, you know, a mixed orientation marriage, you know, and again, I'll say it one more time. I'm not saying, oh, these are so awesome and easy mm-hmm. and just, you know, but the, 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 the same sex attracted partner in almost every case that I know says, I, 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 
through these deep relational connection that wasn't relying on romance and sexual desire, it ended up cultivating this kind of like unique, I wouldn't even call it sexual, maybe intimate attraction mm-hmm. to my spouse that I could not predict or, or even like certain sexual enjoyment that I could not even predict, even though I still feel very, very gay, you know, mm-hmm. like this is not the kind of old ex-gay narrative that like, you're just, you know, you'll, you'll become straight if you marry somebody right. else's sex. Not that. But I am saying that sexuality is very complex and unpredictable. And to think, to come into this conversation with these really black and white binary categories of gay and straight and sexuality is more complex than those wooden categories, which is going back to your point of like, it might not be healthy to form your entire identity around your sexual desires because that can be a moving target. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Shift, change. And, and our brains are so um, fluid and as we're learning plastic, uh, neuroplastics yeah. that, yeah, there's a lot going on there, especially when it, it comes to something as powerful as sexuality. I'd really encourage you to get a copy of Preston's book so that you can explore some of these questions and arguments further. Not so that you can win an argument, but so that you can be rooted in understanding for yourself and maybe your kids, if you have children, what God's word really says on these topics. We have to remember that Jesus met people in the middle of their sin and brokenness. He challenged them relationally, not with clever arguments, but he met them both with truth and with love, and we are called to do the same. If you're looking for more resources that explain God's design for sexuality, please take a look at our blog post on sexual integrity, which we've linked to in our show notes. Well, friend, that's it for today. I want to encourage you to tune in on Thursday for our final episode of this series with Rachel Gilson. It's a great kind of partner episode to this one, and will really challenge you to press into knowing what you believe God says about sexuality. Hey, thanks for joining me, and I look forward to being with you on Thursday for another episode of Java with Julie.